But now I want to look at the doctrine of salvation with you. And we just looked in our scripture reading. We can look again at Revelation chapter 1, which summarizes that doctrine of salvation very crisply in those several verses, verse 4 through 6. So let's uh, just dive in and look at those verses and then expand and expound on this doctrine of salvation. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, bless us as we read and study your word today. And concerning the doctrine of salvation, in Christ's name, amen. So after we decide that the Bible is our source of authority, the most important message of the Bible is the message of salvation. Summarized in verse 4 through 6, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Does that sound like something related to salvation? By grace are ye saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? And um, peace. God pours his love into our hearts. He gives us peace as a result of this doctrine of salvation. From whom who was, who is, who rather, who is and who was and is to come. And the sevenfold spirits before his throne. So he is, he was and is to come. This is of course Jesus. From Jesus, the faithful witness, a firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Almost like the Lord's Prayer there, but in this verses we see the focus is on who? It's on Jesus and his grace, his death, his resurrection, what he did for us. He washed us with his own blood. He freed us, and he, made, he makes us kings and priests. And why did he do this? Because he loves us. This is the doctrine of salvation. And in our special number today, our sister was reminding us of how important that is to remember that God is not um, against us. He's for us. And he desires to see us in the kingdom. And of course, the center part of this doctrine of salvation is the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I like how this author puts it. A deadly spiritual malady is on the church. Its members are wounded by Satan, but they will not look to the cross of Christ. As the Israelites look to the brazen serpent that they may live. The world has so many claims upon them that they have not time to look to the cross of Calvary long enough to see its glory and feel its power. So the suggestion here is that people get too busy and they don't look at the doctrine of salvation, and the heart of it is the cross of Christ. So how do you think we might do well to look at that for a few moments this morning? He who has had a vivid view of the cross will hate sin, love righteousness, and his doubts will vanish. Do you have any doubts? Would you like to see them vanish? Looking at the cross will lead you to hate sin, love righteousness, and your doubts will vanish away. Three things to consider about the cross this morning. Its position, its purpose, and its power. First of all, the position of the cross. It's basically the center of the plan of salvation. You know, Genesis 3.15 is the cross put in embryonic form, will bruise... um, shall bruise thy heel, but I'll crush thy head. This idea that uh, 
that God himself would enter in and um, have to be bruised for us reminds us of Isaiah 53. He is bruised for our iniquities, etc. But at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 22, take your son, your only son, sacrifice him. Again, looking forward to the one and only son who would be sacrificed for us. This is way back in the book of Genesis. Exodus, saved by the blood of the lamb as they left Egypt on their exit from Egypt. The only hope was the blood of the lamb that then carried them all the way through that Exodus experience and through the sanctuary that reminds them of it. Numbers 21, a serpent set on a pole. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, by the way, the whole book of Leviticus, all the sacrifices, numbers, you have this serpent on a pole. Deuteronomy, you have the second giving of the law or the second Exodus. Isaiah, he bore our sins. So the prophets in the cross. He was cut off, Daniel 9 said, but not for himself. So the prophecy of Daniel and in the book of Habakkuk, he has actually the post-resurrected Christ will always have the light coming from his hands, reminding that the power comes from those nail-pierced hands. So he must, Matthew says, suffer many things and be killed. So not only the prophets, but the gospels talked about the fact that he would die on the cross. Mark, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected. And after three days rise. Luke, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected and be slain and be raised the third day. Luke 24, um, he spoke of the things concerning himself. And of course, John talks about, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, John 1. All the way through a focus on the passion, not only in the book of John, but also in the book of Revelation, who says that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. So Christ is, and the cross are pivotal in the prophets and also in the Gospels. The disciples, when therefore he had arisen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So one-third of Matthew and Mark and one-fourth of Luke and one-half of John all are talking about the cross and all are devoted to focusing on the last hours of Christ. And this is why we've been told to spend a thoughtful hour a day thinking about the last scenes concerning Christ because of its pivotal nature. The Apostle John had this to say, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He tried different approaches, but he said, Wow, actually looking at the cross is the most effective of all. God forbid that I should boast about anything except the what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago, and the world's interest in me also is long dead. When we look at the cross, what it's saying is that um, we die to the world and then the, dial, the world dies to us. It realizes it's no use. The person's so in love with Jesus, there's no way I'm going to tempt them. There's no way I'm going to come near them. I can't touch them because they're focusing on the cross. That's the picture that's given here. <clears throat> what about the early Advent movement? <clears throat> In the book, Christ Object Lessons, page 362, all the blessings of this life and the life to come are stamped with what? The cross of Calvary. It is the great center of attraction 
For on it Christ gave up his life for the human race. The cross of Christ will be the song of the redeemed through all eternity in Christ glorified. They will behold Christ crucified. Never will it be forgotten. Worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his own precious blood. So that's what it said in Revelation 1. Who washed us from our sins in his own blood, not someone else's blood. The redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Christ their science and song. If you want to study science in the future, it will all be about the cross. And that will be the foundation of singing. In fact, even the angels. The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. So even those who never fell are guarded by looking at the cross. How many think we should begin looking at the cross even more fully if this is true? And that's the whole idea of the doctrine of salvation, looking to the dying lamb who gives us light. Without the cross, there would be no more. They, that is the angels, would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. So they look at the cross as well. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Edom. Eden, the paradise of bliss. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must look to the Lamb of God. Don't think, you know what? I'm just going to get good enough that I'm just okay. No, no, no. A thousand times no. (laughs) You'd be looking at Christ and the cross. The death of Christ on the cross of Calvary is our only hope in this world. And it will be our theme in the world to come. Oh, we do not comprehend the value of the atonement. If we did, we would talk more about it. So the focus of our gospel presentations and talking with people is the cross. And the cross is only the beginning of it. You know, I saw a lady on a plane a couple years back. She wore a big cross. So that's a very nice cross. Why, do you, why are you wearing that? What does that stand for? And so we started the discussion. And she said, uh, I said, so you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you, well, what's he doing now? Um, I'm not sure. What do you mean you're not sure? What did he do? What's he doing now? I'm not, I'm not sure. And finally the man behind said, you know, leave the lady alone. She's just wearing a cross. And I said, well, what do you think? So I kind of brought him into it. Pretty soon we had like everybody discussing what was happening. And then they all got kind of upset at me and they said, well, what do you think? Uh, what do you think about it? You're asking us all questions, you know. And I said, well, I think the cross is the beginning of a whole plan of salvation. It's the atonement, but then it leads to the final atonement. I begin to share that doctrine of the atonement. And uh, so, you know, the lady says, well, so you don't think my cross is enough? I said, it's the very beginning. Without it, there's nothing. But if you truly did want to uh, have the full implication of the cross, you might buy an entire sanctuary set and wear that. And it would... Of course, you probably would have not gotten through security, but you certainly would have had everybody talking about the implications of the atonement. Can you say amen? As a matter of fact, if I went into manufacturing jewelry, that's what I would do. I would make sanctuary sets 
that were in pendant form. So, number one, its position is to be central, not just for us on earth, but even in heaven. What's its purpose? The purpose of the cross is to point out the uncompromising and infinite justice of God. Something we don't talk about much, but the justice of God, the wages of sin, is what? Is death. One sin unrepented of is enough to close heaven. It was because man could not be saved with one stain of sin that Jesus came to die on Calvary's cross. We have no assurance of salvation if we are clinging to sin. If we decide to cling to sin, it doesn't matter what we say about it, what we sing about it, what we write about it, we're going to be lost. But we don't have to be lost. Can you say hallelujah? But one sin unrepented of that means, what's this repentance means? It means to change the mind, right? We change our mind. We say that's a bad thing. Sometimes we don't know things are sin until we know it. To him that knoweth to do right and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But once we learn about it, we have to say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be there with that. So if someone could be saved with one stain of sin, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But he came and he died for every strain of sin, can you say hallelujah? Can you say hallelujah to that? Um, God is not omnipotent in the sense that he can do anything. God can only do those things that are consistent with his nature. He cannot, therefore, readily pardon the sinner because he's a God of infinite justice. He doesn't just pardon everybody. You know, people say, I have unconditional love. God has unconditional love. Well, he does, but only because he met the conditions. Does that make sense? He met the conditions, and that why, that's why it can be unconditional to us. But make no mistake, we're saved by work, the work of God on Calvary for us, his works. We're saved by works, and he meets the conditions. And sometimes we just cavalierly say, oh, it's just unconditional. No, no, no. Jesus died so you can say that. Can you say hallelujah? How many of you are following what I'm saying? Neither can he readily punish the sinner because he's a God of infinite mercy. He's got justice, he's got mercy, and then this is the divine dilemma. You know, how, how is it that I can pardon the sinner without compromising my justice, and how can I judge the sinner without frustrating my mercy, my love? Um, and how in the face of human sin could he be at the same time a God of love and a God of wrath? How could that happen? And how could he both pardon the sinner and punish his sin? And maybe you've even had this dilemma. I need to discipline my child, but I love my child. I don't want my child to have pain, and yet I know my child can't go on like that. Mm-hmm. Right? And how could a righteous God forgive unrighteous men without involving himself in their unrighteousness? I have a friend of mine, George, that he said, look, I tried to experience the power of the cross by when my son did something very bad, I had to punish him, but I felt so bad about punishing him, I had him take off my belt and give me a spanking for what he did. And uh, so he said, I want him to understand the power of the cross. Um, and the cross points to God's infinite mercy and in death, he took the sinner's place. He became flesh for us. He suffered in the flesh for us. He became sin for us on the cross. So in the cradle, he became human flesh. Uh, during his life, he suffered in the flesh for us. And then on the cross, he died for us. He be, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him, what? 
the iniquity of us all. That's meeting the conditions. God's love is not unconditional to, uh, uh, to him. He actually meets the conditions. Does that make sense? I mean, it's so cavalier. Everyone says his love is unconditional. I don't think they know what they're talking about. But uh, it sounds like a great settlement until you realize that the, the reason that it's not conditional to you is because he's meeting the conditions for you. Okay? It's very important to remember that. He points out his infinite mercy. He took the sinner's place. He was treated as we deserve. That's meeting the conditions, isn't it? That we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which we had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours. This is all meeting those conditions, right? That we might receive the life which was his, and with his stripes we are healed. Not by our good works, by his good work. Does that make sense? So, you know... These are my two dogs when they were younger. One's name was Mac and the other's name was Tosh. Mac and Tosh. And uh, one of them lives here on the campus now with the Walpers, the one lives with us. Um, my wife did not have unconditional love for Mac, so he was raptured <laughs> to the Walpers. I always tell my kids, let that be a lesson to you. If things don't go well, you'll be living somewhere else. Um, but you know, worth, let's talk about worth. Do you think your dog is worth something? Do you take care of your dog? Do you care about your dog? Does it have worth to you? What about the insects in your house? Do you, do you pet the ants and the scorpions? Say, oh, good morning, little scorpy. No, you don't, because one of them has more value or worth, right? If I came to school with a, you know, with a leash on an ant, what would you think? That guy's crazy. <laughs> Or, you know, a mosquito. No. One of them has more worth than the other. And more dignity. What about my children versus a dog? This is my children a few years back, and then one of the Bivens twins. And uh, that's back when Donnie was not the size of a camel. He was actually riding a camel. And James. Um, so which, is worth, which has more dignity here? The dog or the kids? Right? The kids, of course, right? You guys are, <laughs> what kind of a parents are you guys? <laughs> They're just sitting there like, eh. all right. If you had to choose between it, it would be the kids, yes? yes. And then what about, what about this comparison? This is the, Ellen White says, the closest depiction as to what Jesus looked like. Jesus versus the kids, I mean, uh, Jesus, who is God, has more dignity than children or adults because he created us and owns us and is infinitely superior to us in every way. Would you agree with that? And he has infinite dignity as the Son of God. Only Christ, the God-man, could save us. As a human, he had no sins of his own by, from which, for which an atonement needed to be made. As God, he was of infinite value and could be offered for the sins of everyone. That's why he became flesh. He had to become flesh to die as the God-man for us with infinite dignity to cover everything, to meet all the conditions. Amen. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. That's the picture that's given. So on the battlefield one day, they, had, they were giving blood uh, to a soldier who was dying without that blood. 
And they asked, whose blood is it? He wanted to see, so he looked at the canister, and it was General Eisenhower's blood. He says, what? The blood of the general has been given to me? And he said, wow, his blood has saved me. How precious was the blood of the general to this soldier. But guess what? Some blood even more precious than General Eisenhower's blood is and has been given for ours. What can wash away my sin? You can sing it with, with me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other font I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this is the blood of Jesus. On the cross, he paid infinite justice, right? The law had to be honored. This is why we can't take the law and say it's of no value. It's of infinite value. It never changes. It was written with his own finger and lived with his own life. It will eternally be there and always has been there. And so it can't be changed and so the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's an example for each one of the Ten Commandments of instant death if you broke it. There's at least one example. Instant death. Instant death of that. Because, you know, justice is not uh, you know, given speedily, therefore the hearts of men are intent to do evil. But... Uh, in Revelation 2, it says he gave that woman Jezebel space to repent. <laughs> I'm glad that he gives us space. But there's infinite justice, and there are examples of every one of the Ten Commandments of instant death. Even being disrespectful to your parents or by proxy your teachers. Instant death is an example of that. And then he also is the author of infinite mercy. So on the cross, justice and mercy kiss each other. He dies paying for your debt while at the same time dying to extend you mercy. This is why you can be able to sing about anything. The cross is your only hope of mercy because it meets the justice which should have fallen on you. How many can say hallelujah to that? Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. This is the truest of all kisses, the kiss of love of God on the cross where mercy and justice kiss each other. And it's actually what all kisses are supposed to symbolize, the covenant commitment of the God of justice and mercy. Justice and mercy stood apart in opposition to each other, separated by a wide gulf. The Lord our Redeemer clothed his divinity with humanity and wrought out in behalf of man a character that was without spot or blemish. He planted his cross midway between heaven and earth and made it the object of attraction, which reached both ways, drawing both justice and mercy across the gulf. There it saw one equal with God, bearing the penalty for all injustice and sin. With perfect satisfaction, 
Justice bowed in reverence at the cross, saying, It is enough. How many beginning to understand why the, the, the cross has such a power and attraction? Amen. This is the center of the gospel, and we should be thinking about it and talking about it all the time. Its position, its purpose, and finally its power. <clears throat> a deadly, we started with this, a deadly spiritual malady <clears throat> is upon the church. Its members are wounded by Satan, but they will not look to the cross of Christ as the Israelites look to the brazen serpent that they may live. The world has so many claims upon them, they have no time to look to the cross of Calvary long enough to see its glory and feel its power. How many of you want to be looking at it more fully as a result of what we've been studying? It has great power. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the cross gives us power to live godly lives as we look at it. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and its lusts. They say, look, I want to die with Christ on the cross by faith and enter into that justice and I want to live basking in his mercy but then demonstrating his mercy to others. That's the whole point. The goodness of God leads us to change our minds to repentance. God forbid that I should boast or glory about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has died long ago, and the world's interest in me is also long dead. That's what happens when we focus on the cross. We're not boasting in what we've done. We're boasting in what he's done and is doing. Amen? We're not talking about the baptisms we got. We're talking about the baptisms he got. We're not talking about the souls we're witnessing to. We're talking about the souls he's witnessing to because we're dead. And we're dead. That's what gives us boldness to witness because we're already dead. You're not afraid of somebody if you're dead. You'll talk to anybody if you're dead. And you might get their attention because they go, wait, you're dead. How are you talking to me? And this will wake them up. How is it that you're dead to this? How is it that you're dead to that? This is why witnessing takes place in times of great stress. This is why we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine today. That in the midst of great stress, they've already died. They're not afraid of death. They're dead. Can you say hallelujah? And because of that, they have boldness in this day of trial. And people go, wait, how do you have that peace that passes all understanding? I was watching some videos this morning of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters worshiping on the Sabbath underneath buildings and different things. They're singing. They're rejoicing. Hallelujah. That's the point. If we die to self because we're crucified with Christ by the power of the cross, we can live merciful and powerful lives. Whether Whatsoever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Fear God, give him glory for the hour of his judgment is come. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives to the death. So they're not afraid of death. And they think the most important thing they have is the word of their testimony. And by the way, that's the only thing you really have, isn't it? It's the most powerful thing you have. And that testimony is based not on your self-worth, um, except as it be in Christ, 
But it's based on whose testimony? The testimony of Jesus who overcame by the blood of the Lamb. And I said, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they that came out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the what? In the blood of the Lamb. You should know how every stain came out. You should know your stains and how they came out. They came out by the blood of the Lamb. I confessed it and I sent it on to judgment and he took care of it. His blood is, was and is and will be my only hope. Amen? From Jesus that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's where we started, isn't it? Revelation chapter 1. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus, Jesus is a gift. Obedience to that faith is a gift. That's commandment keeping. And patience is a gift. These are all of the Holy Spirit. They're not of us. They're of God. And we give total credit because of the cross of Christ. Right? Did he demonstrate patience on the cross? Did he demonstrate obedience on the cross? Did he demonstrate faith in his Father on the cross? All those are from the cross. And they come to us through looking at that. The faith of Jesus a gift. Obedience a gift. Patience a gift. I was in Venezuela some years ago on a road, not like this one, but somewhat like it. And it was a treacherous road. And uh, there were parts of the road where our, our, our tires were like over the edge, but it was way up. And there were all kinds of crosses all along the road. And I said, what are all those crosses for? And they said, well, that's where someone went over. And I said, how is it that you know how to drive and slow down and stuff? I was very interested in the driver's abilities for some reason. He goes, what I do is I always look at the cross. I know where the crosses are. And when I look at the cross, we're safe. If I take my eyes off the crosses, we'd be doomed. Because that's where people went over. We need to keep our eye on the cross, the driver said. And I said, man, <laughs> that is the best sermon illustration I've ever lived through, ever. <laughs> Being saved by looking at the cross throughout the whole journey and the whole trip. If men would contemplate the love of Christ displayed in the cross, their faith would be strengthened to appropriate the merits of his shed blood and they would be cleansed and saved from sin. How many of you want to contemplate more fully the cross each and every day? That's the picture. And have you ever thought about what is it in for God, the plan of salvation? This is the people I have formed for myself. Just like our special music said, God loves us. He formed us for himself. He loves us. He saved you because he values you. When Adam got lost, he said, where are you? The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. He wants to be your friend. He's looking for you. He formed you for himself. He says, Abraham, you're my friend. There's no one else like you. This is why the plan of salvation is so powerful. God loves you. Let's look at the person next to you and say, God loves you. Look at them. Say it. God actually loves you. He knows each individual raisin. Did anyone say God loves you to you? God loves you. He loves each individual by name and cares for each one as if there were not another one on earth for whom he gave his only, his beloved son. He would have died for just one person and that person is you. Hallelujah. That's, that's the good news of this. I mean, we've looked at the technicalities, but it comes down to it's because he loves you. John four eleven, sir, you have nothing to draw with. She wanted to help Jesus. If any man opened the door. See, Jesus needs our help. The woman at the well needed to draw the water. The man has to open the door in Revelation. 
Could you not watch with me one hour? He needs us to pray. He wants us to open the door. He wants us to draw the water. One Redeemer, our Redeemer, thirsts for recognition. He hungers for the sympathy and love of those he has purchased with his own blood. Look, he loves you, but he wants you to love him back. How many of you want to help him to draw the water, to open the door, to do whatever he says? Because he's shown that he loves you. <laughs> That's the point. He saved you because only you can feel his deepest need. He loves you. Each has his place in the eternal plan of heaven. No more, not more surely is a place prepared for us in the heavenly mansions than as a special place designated on earth that we're to work for God. He knows where you should be here. He loves you enough to have a plan and purpose for your life. But he also has a place in heaven. It's kind of like one of these boxes, you know, that I had for my kids when they were growing up. You had to have these little pieces that fit just right in that. Have you ever had played one of these puzzles where the piece fit right in? Every single one of those pieces represents you, one of you. You're unique. No one else fits in that place. And God wants to prepare a place for you and your family. You, me. And he says, I'm preparing a place for you. And I love you so much, I've died for every stain and hint of sin. As you confess them, I forgive them, and I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Can you say hallelujah to that? This is the point of the cross. The cross was not something, this, this happened for, you know, no big deal, a long time. It's for you. And there's no one that can fill that space you were not redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And he paid for you, and he values you. You need him, but he also says, I need you. My heart would break if you were not there. I've done everything for you to be there. Do you want to come? Do you want to be with me? I would that they be with me. John 17, 24, where I am. I want you to be where I am. That's a true friend. You know, I don't want to Zoom you, Skype you, FaceTime you. I want to be with you where I am. Don't you like that song? In the heart of Jesus, there is love for you. Love most pure and tender. Love most deep and true. Why should you be lonely? Why for friendship's sigh? When the heart of Jesus has a full supply. Do you know this song? Father in heaven, we're thankful today for the plan of salvation established before the foundation of the world and being carried out by you. Thank you that you have met every condition for us in serving infinite justice and you're able to provide every mercy for us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, in response to the mercies of God, we want to present ourselves living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. We want to be motivated by your love, and we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.